0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, Some of you may remember, this is actually my second time speaking here. So about two years ago, um, I think some of you were here, I did a presentation for an organisation I used to work for called Voice of the Martyrs. And the thing with that presentation is I didn't have to write it. (laughs) It was pretty much given to me and I just presented it. And so this is actually the first time that I'm speaking something original, um, something from the heart. And it's the story of the book of Job, um, and I've titled it God in Chaos. Um, And we're not going to read it word for word, but we'll do a sort of overview of the book and deep dive into a couple of passages. Um, And at the outset, I just wanted to say that there are so many ways to tackle the book of Job, so many lenses that you could look at it through. And today is just one specific lens. Like, you might read it tomorrow and get a completely different message out of it. And it's just filled with so many wonderful depths and layers. Um, But today, we're going to tackle it on the layer of kind of theodicy, like a discussion of God and justice, but also kind of not. And you'll see what I mean um, when we get to the end, why it's kind of not. Because the irony is God actually never answers Job's questions in the way Job wants him to. And so um, I just want to stop here and set the scene a bit about the book of Job. Now, I didn't realise this, but biblical scholars and even rabbinic traditions have dated Job as the oldest book of the Bible. And I find this really fascinating. In fact, Ellen White tells us in Patriarchs and Prophets that Moses wrote Job when he was tending the sheep in the wilderness of his father-in-law, Jethro. And he wrote Genesis and Job. And the funny thing is, why would Moses sit down, not yet have penned a single line of Torah, and thought to himself, where do I need to begin? And he comes up with Job, or Genesis, then Job, either way. And if you think about it, this actually makes complete sense, because What we're going to learn in depth is Job is ultimately a story of the great controversy played out in a person's life and one where God's character and his judgment and his justice are called into question. Ellen White got how important this is when she wrote the Conflict of the Ages series. Have you noticed how she doesn't actually start chapter one of Patriarchs and Prophets with the creation story? Theorized students will know what um, chapter does she actually start with because I know it's part of your recommended reading. It's Why Was Sin Permitted, a chapter all about the rebellion of Satan in heaven and this big um, dispute between God's principles and Satan's principles. And it explains the fundamental crucial question that unlocks every other passage of scripture and and an understanding of God's character and the biggest question of all which we all wrestle with. How could a good God have permitted all this suffering and terror that we see around us? Why was there even a snake in the garden in the first place? And this question is crucial because it not only shapes our understanding of the world and the way we interpret scripture, but of our understanding of the character of God. Have we not all cried out to God at some stage in our life and thought, why is this happening to me? Have we not all hit a moment where everything went to chaos and we thought, where are you, God? I'm, you know, I love you, I serve you, I'm a Christian. Why are these things happening to me? And given the recent events of flood and war and pandemic, I think we all have this acute sense more than ever that there are some real injustices taking place. And that why question is just nagging at us. And so recognizing this, Moses and Ellen White say, before we get to the rest of the Bible, you need to understand there is a war taking place. There is a villain in the story who's putting God's character on trial and his essence and his government um, on trial, and he's being accused of being unjust. And so Moses starts the book of Job um, with one of these rare insights we get into the Bible where we get to see things that are typically completely unseen And so if you have a Bible, feel free to open it. We're going to start in um, Job chapter 1 and just reacquaint ourselves with the story. So there's a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. And also his possessions were so on and so on. And I just want to flag that the start of this story sets up a character who is blameless and upright. And that's important because we realise that everything that's about to happen to him, he deserves none of it. And he's also a very content man. He seems to have everything that he needs. And it is true, God has blessed him a lot. And his sons would go and feast in their houses each on his appointed day and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. We're going to come back to that later. Now this is where it gets interesting. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Isn't this scene so odd? Because we do not know under what premise the sons of God and Satan have come um, to, to God's presence, but we get the sense that it's like this formal meeting where the masters of certain planets and Satan um, are coming to sort of discuss matters that have been happening on the earth. And Satan comes as a representative of the earth. Like, do you remember the story in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus, when um, Jesus, uh, Satan says to Jesus, if you bow down and worship me, all these things I will give you, showing him the earth. You see, how could Satan give something he didn't already own? We know all throughout the Bible, and we don't really have time to go into it, but there is this idea that Satan to an extent runs the world. God in Pain by David Ashwick says, Satan is the prince of this world. Jesus himself referred to him that way three times. The Apostle Paul even went so far as to call him, whoops, sorry, as to call him the God of this world. Having usurped earth's dominion and management from Adam, Satan exercises a kind of constabulary rule over our world. Another Adventist theologian, John Peckham, states in his book, The Odyssey of Love, Satan has a limited and temporary domain, talking about earth, wherein he wields significant power and jurisdiction. And we literally get to read this dialogue between God and Satan regarding the great controversy, the demonstration of Satan's principles and God's principles. Have a look at this. God asked Satan, where do you come from? Satan answered, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. This identical question and answer appears in Job 2, suggesting they are procedural, perhaps indicating that Satan attends the heavenly council as the representative or ruler of the earth. The focus then abruptly turns to an apparently prior and ongoing dispute between God and Satan. So the conversation between God and Satan kind of goes like this. From where have you come? Oh, I've come from, for example, Kingscliff. Kingscliff, hey? Have you seen my friend Leon? Have you seen my friend Megan? So this is the kind of dynamic they're having And then the conversation behind the conversation is even more interesting. It kind of goes like this. Satan goes, I've come from earth. God says, earth, the place that you say you have dominion. Have you seen my servant Job? Earth, the place that you have claimed as your own and you are trying to govern it with your principles of selfishness and hate. But have you seen my servant Job who chooses to live by my principles of love? He is blameless and upright and so on. And so Satan is unhappy with this. He cannot allow it to stand. God has stuck his finger on something that is a slap in the face to Satan. When God takes the initiative in the conversation... The topic suggests a discussion long in progress. It is as though God and Satan are picking up where they last left off on a subject about which they disagree. Have you considered my servant Job? In other words, this conversation is a continuation of an ongoing disagreement. And see, some people think that in the book of Job... Um, Satan is accusing God, because that's typically what he does. But the funny thing is, in this story, it's actually the opposite. God is calling out Satan and putting his finger on something that proves him wrong. He, Satan, appears to be on the defensive. When God brings Job to Satan's attention, it has the connotation of evidence that Satan would like to ignore. God's reference to Job Job's integrity forces Satan to show his hand and he will do it by proposing a test that is meant to give him the edge in the argument with God. And so, the story continues. Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan is essentially saying, you've bought his loyalty. This doesn't prove your case at all. People do not willingly choose to live by your principles unless they get something out of it. His relationship with you is based off complete self-interest because you give him all these things. And so in his view, in Satan's view, God and Job are in this like mutual contractual relationship where in exchange for worship and devotion, God gives Job gifts. Therefore, although Job's character is at stake, God is actually the implied target in the whole story. And so we know what happens next. Job is given four messages one after another where he discovers that he has lost everyone and everything that he cares about. And then he remains faithful and Then Satan inflicts him with boils and at this point he is just completely miserable and some friends show up to comfort him. Now we're going to spend some time summarising the next 30 chapters or so because these chapters are just a back and forth debate between Job and his friends. And at the core of the debate are these three questions. Is God just? Does God run the universe on the principles of justice? And if so, how is Job's suffering to be explained? And the thing is, in this entire debate, both Job and his friends are working from this big underlying assumption of what justice ought to look like in the world. So if you're a wise and a good person, you're going to get success and reward. And if you're an evil person that does sinful things, you're going to get punishment. So we're just going to pause here and unpack Job's argument to his friends and vice versa. Job's argument goes something like this. I'm innocent... Therefore, my suffering is not divine justice. Because remember, according to the assumption, God only punishes those who are evil or sinful. Therefore, God does not run the world according to justice, or even worse, God himself is simply unjust. And then the friends respond. But let me tell you something so interesting about these friends. In the story, they're not just friends. You see, the book of Job is actually a book of dense Hebrew poetry and one of the three wisdom literature books alongside Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the three friends, in the story represent the best of ancient Near Eastern thinking about God and suffering and the human condition at the time. What they say to Job is nothing short of what the best philosophical thinkers at the time had to say about God and what they believed. And in fact, many biblical scholars identify with excellent evidence that these friends actually came from an area known for its wise men. They were likely men of prestige, knowledge, and wisdom. And don't forget, all of them are apparently followers of Jehovah. More than that, each friend claims a different source for their argument. Eliphaz claims special revelation, which means like he thinks he just got it directly from God, what he's about to say. Bildad invokes tradition and Zophar reason. And so each friend genuinely believes that what they have to say is credible, true, and going to help Job identify the problem. They lay out for us everything human reason has to say about the subjects of God and suffering. But funnily enough, they all have a similar kind of argument. And at this point, we might ask ourselves, though, Why does the Bible lend so much time to these three friends talk about things that we find out at the end or even when you're reading them, they're not really true, they're not really great of God or even a very good description of what's going on? And we'll come back to answer that a bit later. And so his friend's argument goes like this. We know God is just and we know he runs the world on the principles of justice and fairness. So... Job must have done something really bad to be getting what he deserves. You see this type of thinking of the story in the Bible in John chapter 9 um, when Jesus was walking past a blind man with his disciples and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither, but that the works of God shall be revealed in him. And so we see the mentality of Job's three friends permeating Jewish thinking even in Jesus' time. And and Jesus says, well, wrong on both accounts. Something else entirely is going on. And the thing with this type of thinking is it is so damaging to the character of God more than anything else. On the one hand, they cast God as a person who is remote and detached and to whom human existence and conduct are matters of indifference. And on the other hand, as the most stable refrain, they depict God as relentlessly harsh and exacting. While nothing in these speeches is flattering to Job, their mantra is unremittingly unflattering to God. They're essentially agreeing with Satan, what he said in the beginning of the story, you are rewarded for good and punished for bad. God walks, works by a mutual understanding. No one would willingly choose to live by his principles and love him if they don't get something out of it. And so for the next 34 chapters, Job is on an absolute emotional roller coaster ride. In some verses, he's confident that God is wise and good, but in other verses, he blames God for almost all the injustices that take place in the world. And by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God comes and explains himself in person. Oh, that I had one to hear me, here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had written a book. And so God does come. And I'll just put in a bracket here, We're going to skip the speech of Elihu. Um, There's a fourth friend that usually speaks in the story before God comes, but we don't have time to deal with that. So we go straight to God. And he comes out of this whirlwind, which I find really interesting because, you see, the form that God comes in in the Bible can be significant. Like, do you remember the story of Elijah when he gets really depressed and flees to a mountaintop and then he experiences a fire and an earthquake and a tempest? But it says... God wasn't in the fire or the earthquake or the tempest. He was in the still, small voice. You see, in Job, God doesn't come in a still, small voice. He comes in the tempest, in the whirlwind. So the the in the um, Hebrew, the word for whirlwind here is Saah which can mean storm, tempest, like just this a fierce, raging sort of weather um, or whirlwind. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense because the wind... Blows in random places. You can't see where it's going. You don't know, you know, where it's heading next, and you can't understand it. Funny enough, um, biblical scholars think that Job probably lived on the edge of the Arabian Desert, which was a place known for having really big sandstorms and sand whirlwinds. And these whirlwinds would, you know, pick up whatever was in their place—sticks and rocks—and it could deconstruct the things around them. And in this way, we can see that Job. Uh, what God is about to say to Job is deconstruct his entire worldview. He's going to essentially take everything we think we understand and we know about God and tear it down, and he's going to take Job to school. In addition, I think he's appearing in this form of majesty and um, intimidation, something really uncontrollable that, in the face of it, humanity seems so small and so helpless. And this makes complete sense in light of what God's about to say to Job because he's going to show us how small we are and how little we know and understand. It's almost a rebuke that we have to be careful not to speak wrong things about God with such confidence. So Job 38, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, who's speaking without knowing what they're talking about? Now prepare yourself like a man, I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fasted? Or who laid its cornerstone? Have you entered the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breath of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. You see, God first responds to Job's accusation that God is incompetent at running the universe. And so he takes Job on this virtual tour of the cosmos and he shows him the origin and order of things and how grand and wonderful it is. And he says, Job... <laughs> Are you even capable of running it or understanding it even for a day? He shows Job how much detail there is in the world that we might see every day but not really understand. But God does. He knows it all intimately and he demonstrates in this speech that he pays attention to the operations of the universe in a way that we can't imagine in places that we never see. He then goes into detail describing the grazing habits of mountain goats and how deer give birth or feeding patterns of lions and wild donkeys. Do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bear young? What's the point of all this? Well, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He could have told him about the conversation with Satan. He could have explained, look, there's this thing going on called the great controversy. You're kind of stuck in the middle. He could have explained the principles at play. But no, God does something else entirely. And please don't miss this. God bypasses all this and tells Job all he needs to know and all we actually need to know. You see, remember the assumption that we talked about, that the friends had, of what it looks like for God to run the world according to justice? Well, under this is a deeper assumption. And this is where it gets real, because to some extent we all have this assumption. The assumption is that we have a wide enough perspective on life to make such a claim about how God ought to run the world. And in God's response, God completely deconstructs all of this all of these assumptions in in that he demonstrates that we don't have the faintest clue about how he ought to run the universe. He shows us the universe is a vastly complex space and he has his eye on all of it, every detail, and we don't. So why do we and Job and his three friends think that we could uh, understand it? We only have the small horizon of our life from which to draw experience. From our view, the world is... Our, our viewpoint of the world is very limited and it needs to be seen in an infinitely larger context. Job and us are simply never in a position to make such huge accusations about God. And this is why so much time is dedicated to Job's friend's speeches in the book of Job. Because through their speeches, we re- which remember our representatives as the best of ancient Near Eastern thinking about God at the time, we realise that the full breadth an expanse of human knowledge cannot explain God. His ways are a mystery and we will spend eternity learning about them. God's response to Job, as well as the fact that Job's friends were so confident but wrong about what was happening, should evoke the recognition that we are not in a position to know everything necessary to evaluate God's action or inaction in specific instances. <clears throat> this reminds me of a story that Ty Gibson tells in Arise. Um, it's the story of um, a person looking through a keyhole, one of those old-fashioned keyholes that we don't have anymore where you can see all the way through to the other side of the door. And as he's looking through the keyhole, he sees someone on the other side um, drenched in blood and there's someone standing over him cutting him open and it's the most gruesome scene and he, he thinks someone's being murdered in there. So you f- you know, he flings open the door And he realises it's a surgeon and he was trying to save him all along. See, it's just like this with our perspective on God. Sometimes we see him through this keyhole and we make assumptions. But if we could see the bigger picture, we would understand. That's why it's so important to realise that just like in the book of Job, the answer to your problem of pain and our problems of suffering is simply to draw close to God, to get to know him to become acquainted with him and really understand who he is. And so after the virtual tour, he takes Job on. He asks Job if he would like to run the world on the strict principles of justice, punishing every bad deed with immediate and precise retribution. And the obvious answer is no, otherwise we would all be dead. And the fact is, is that a world like ours is extremely complex. It is never black and white like what Job seems to think. Which brings us to our last point, the leviathan god shows job this wondrous beast that is dangerous that could kill you without even thinking about it it breathes fire now there are many interpretations out there of what it is but i'm going to share one with you that i find really compelling <clears throat> you see some biblical scholars actually think the leviathan refers to a well-known creature in ancient near eastern mythology that is used elsewhere in the bible as a symbol of of the disorder and the chaos that exists in God's good world. And God says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? The reed was this controlling mechanism that you could put in the nose of cattle to, you know, string it along. Will you play with him as with a bird or will you leash him for your maidens? In other words, can you control him and put him on a leash like you do with a pet? Can you subdue it in any way? You see, the world has got remnant elements of order and beauty, but it's also wild and fierce and ungovernable like the Leviathan. You know, we live in a world where fallen beings act out free will choices that hurt us and hurt others. It's chaos, and that's kind of the point. Things are out of our control for us and for God. But don't get me wrong, God can do anything. But God does choose to limit himself according to, you know, to protect our free will. Remember, freedom is the most valuable thing in the world to God. He doesn't want to have a creation of robots, you understand. And so the wild beast shows us that in this world, chaos reigns and things happen that God doesn't exactly desire to happen in a sense Remember, coming back to the great controversy, Satan's desire is to live in a world run by these principles of chaos and hate, and he questioned God's government. He questioned love as the primary operating force of reality, and so the fullness of this must be played out on the human stage for all the universe to be sure that God is love, and love is the only way to live. And so from Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just, and sometimes from our point of view. And we have trouble accounting for ours or others' suffering. But through God's response, we receive a lesson on how extremely complex the world is and how at this stage, it is not designed to prevent suffering. At this stage, it is not designed to prevent suffering. Because you see, planet Earth, where we are now, it's not heaven Some of us forget that sometimes, I do. I know I go about my life trying to make it as nice as I can and then something bad happens and I ask, my God, what's going on? But it actually shouldn't surprise me because if I remember where I am on this earth, it all fits. And so um, I think one of the keys to coping with suffering and the problem of pain is to remember this earth isn't our final home. Um, C.S. Lewis makes this great point that maybe one purpose of pain is to remind us that earth is not our final resting place lest we get too comfortable. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so this leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learns why he suffered, and yet he is able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. And he apologizes for accusing God and acknowledges that he overstepped his knowledge boundary. He says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Commenting on this, the SD8 Bible commentary says, God does not vindicate Job at once. His divine purpose is not to settle an argument, but to reveal himself. Neither does he explain to Job the reason for his suffering. A clear understanding of God is superior in importance to an unfolding of all the reasons for divine providence. God does not explain why the wicked prosper or why the righteous suffer. God simply reveals himself, his goodness, his power, his wisdom. Uh, whoops, sorry. And he intends that that revelation, yeah, that revelation shall answer Job's problems. God's reply acquaints Job not merely with facts, but with God. This response was so effective that this approach was so effective that Job's response was, "Now mine eyes see for thee." When Job saw God, his perplexities disappeared when he realized who he is. And then the book closes with this short epilogue, where God says that Job's friend had spoken wrong and they had a far too simple explanation of his justice. And then um, God responds, restores to Job everything that he has lost in double, except for the kids. He only gets back you know, the same amount that he had before. And I'll leave it up for you to decide. But one reason um, I think that is, is perhaps because he will have double when he gets to heaven. Um, the 10 that died and the 10, the ten new ones that he received. Um, I definitely don't think it's a coincidence that, that the story mentions in the very beginning that Job was interceding for them. And the funny thing is, is that in the epilogue, God says that Job has spoken rightly about him, which is weird because we know at times Job is outright um, angry at God and, and drawing hasty conclusions. But the thing is, is that in all his pain, Job cries out for God more than anything else. God approved of Job's wrestling, how Job came honestly before him with all his emotion and pain and simply wanted to talk to God himself. And God says, That's the right way to process suffering and pain. Struggle through in prayer with me. When we are suffering, we can honestly bring our pain and grief to God and trust that He knows what He's doing. Take your suffering to him. Cry out. That is the best mechanism. None of your problems are too small for him. Have a look at this quote from Steps to Christ, which for me is the most beautiful quote in the entire spirit of prophecy. It's a little bit long, but if you stay with me, it'll be worth it, I promise. Keep your wants, your joys, your sorrows, your cares, and your fears before God. You cannot burden him. You cannot weary him. He who numbers the hairs of your head is not indifferent to the wants of his children. The Lord is very pitiful and full of tender mercy. His heart of love is touched by our sorrows and even by our utterances of them. Take to him everything that perplexes the mind. Nothing is too great for him to bear, for he holds up worlds. He rules over all the affairs of the universe. Nothing that in any way concerns our peace is too small for him to notice. There is no chapter in our experience too dark for him to read. There is no perplexity too difficult for him to unravel. No calamity can befall the least of his children. No anxiety harass the soul. No joy cheer. No sincere prayer escape the lips of which our heavenly Father is unobservant or in which he takes no immediate interest. The relations between God and each soul are as distinct and full as though there were not another soul upon the earth to share his watch care, not another soul for whom he gave his beloved son. Which brings me to my concluding point. Job gives us one of the most astoundingly beautiful insights into the story of Jesus. In this novel, we see the story of God giving up a righteous, upright man into the hands of an enemy to experience pain on every conceivable level. Mentally, physically, emotionally, he experienced disgrace, shame, grief, loneliness, fear, rejection, a broken spirit. And through a proper reading of the story of Job, we begin to understand not only how to interpret our own suffering and pain, but how to interpret God's suffering and pain. How Jesus felt on the earth, rejected by friends, um, having the weight of the world's sin upon him. Job shows us that the proper perspective to interpret our own pain and the pain of others on this planet is through Jesus. Jesus felt our pain. He knows exactly what it feels like to question God like we do. Remember, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That why question that we all ask. Only with the cross at the focal point, only with our understanding that no matter what we suffer on this earth, Our God, our creator, has suffered with us, has suffered for us, and has suffered worse than any of us ever could. Only with that understanding can any theodicy even begin to make sense. We don't know why God permits evil, but we do know that God was prepared to suffer on our behalf. Jesus asks the why question, just like us. And just like us, Jesus' pain can be completely unjust, undeserved. See your pain, see Jesus' pain, and think about it. Seriously think about it. Sin did this to our God, and it does it to us. Pain and suffering is hard. We were never made to experience it. But let us learn from Job that in all of it, God is love, God is just, and he is light, and in him is no darkness at all.